You are listening to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Podcast from Petaluma, California. Here is this week's Adult Sunday School class. Let's go ahead and uh, open up in prayer. Gracious God, we, we thank you for each time we can gather and come and have fellowship with one another and with you uh, together as your people. And Father, we're thankful even in times like this where we can have a sort of classroom opportunity to dig into different aspects of your truth uh, that we find in your word. And so, Father, we ask that you would bless our, our, our time again today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we took last week off from this little mini-series because we had a guest speaker. I remember Dr. Stell came and talked about the seminary I went to, Westminster Seminary in California. And so we had a little bit of a break, but uh, I had started taking us through this book, Christianity and Liberalism by Machen, J. Gresham Machen. And reminder, Machen is really one of the founders of our denomination in, in, in the 19, early 1900s. Uh, he and others uh, were fighting for biblical Christianity. You could also say historic Christianity. You could say orthodox Christianity, true Christianity, against something that uh, began to be known as liberalism. And to clarify, we're not talking about politics when we use that word. We're talking about theological liberalism. So, uh, you know, just to, to make sure we understand what we're talking about. Christianity and theological liberalism, those are the things being uh, compared. And sometimes that theological liberalism is also referred to as modernism. Remember, we said that a lot of this thinking was inspired by the Enlightenment and the period of modernity and trying to see how does that relate to different things such as religion, such as Christianity. And so this is me just giving you a reminder of what we've been talking about here. So Machen in this book, his premise was, and it's the right premise, that Christianity versus theological liberalism, they're really two different religions. And the reason why he he had to fight for this and why we have to still fight for this is that in so many churches that bear the name Christian, this theological liberalism was infiltrating and invading. And if that was true in the early 1900s, it's unfortunately in many places uh, either still active or the battle has been finished in some sense and in many cases, the battle was lost in some places to theological liberalism. And so this is why we have to continue to think about this topic. And people who've been rereading this at its 100th anniversary, because this was the 100th anniversary of this book, uh, have been saying, wow, it sounds just like today. It sounds just like today. So uh, remember the topics that we've covered so far. Uh, pull up in the table of contents. So the first one, we had an introduction, which is what I sort of just summarized. Uh, then we talked about doctrine. Remember, the liberals wanted to say doctrine's not important. It's just about how you live. You live Christianly. And, you know, we, Machen pointed, you can't live Christianly unless you know what it means to live Christianly, and that's based on doctrine and teaching, and doctrine is not an enemy to living. They go hand in hand, and, and, you know, emphasizing the importance of, of doctrine doesn't mean you don't have importance on living. Uh, then the second chapter we talked about last week was God and man. God and man, remember we talked about how in liberalism, 
they want to emphasize the universal fatherhood of God. And we do acknowledge, we did acknowledge that there is a small amount of material in the Bible that says God is sort of a universal father from the standpoint of creation, but that the vast majority of Bible teaching is to say God is not the father of the wicked, not the father of those who are not in Christ, and that their father is actually the devil. And so making this distinction of when we pray, our father who are in heaven, that's a special relationship that Christians have with the divine, with God, in a way that the world cannot enjoy unless they acknowledge their sin and turn to Christ and be saved and have that adopted relationship. And so how that universal fatherhood idea um, really affected a lot of the ways that these so-called Christian churches uh, were doing ministry. So. Uh, today's topic, um, we're going to talk first about the Bible, and if there's time, we'll talk about Christ. And again, in each of these topics, what we're trying to do is to say, what does true Christianity say about these things, versus what have the liberals been saying about these things? And by seeing the differences, each of these chapters proves Machen's point. Christianity and liberalism are not the same religion. That makes sense what we're doing? Makes sense. Okay. The Bible. This might touch the chapter, the, the next chapter, the Bible, chapter four. The Bible. This may be one of the most obvious differences for us to see in comparing Christianity versus liberalism. In other words, what do they both think about the Bible? What's their view about the Bible? Is the Bible just an old book written by men with antiquated ideas that no longer fit a modern mind? We have to try to find some nuggets of wisdom in there, but 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 that's all it is, according to the liberals. Or according to Christianity, is it the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God that is the foundation? For all that we believe and do, the rule of faith and practice for Christianity. And obviously that's, that's what it is. But you see very different sort of uh, perspective there. And how many times have you heard today from outsiders, I can't follow some book that was written you know, that many years ago, and lost in translation, they claim without knowing anything what they're talking about, and uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, backwards views, that type of thing. And uh, what's particularly concerning is you understand to a degree when an outsider pagan says that. But when there are so-called people claiming to be Christians, even claiming to be Christian teachers in churches that hold that view, that's a problem, right? That's a problem. So... Machen begins by talking a little bit about the Christian view here. He says that it is an account of God's revelation to man. An account of God's revelation to man. What's that word revelation mean? Revealing. Revealing, that's right. That's right. You can reveal things, right? Reveal things. 
If, if I had something, you couldn't see my tie, and I opened up, now you can see my tie. I revealed my tie to you, right? You can reveal things. God has revealed himself to us in his, in his holy word. And Machen then acknowledges there is another kind of revelation besides what we have in the Bible. And he doesn't, I don't believe he uses this term, general revelation, but this is what he's talking about. He says you can look around and see God's handiwork and see the world as it is and the order and everything. And, and of course you can recognize God in that. He also mentions the human conscience. And I think he particularly has in mind uh, Romans 2, where the law is written on our hearts, even when non-Christians try to ignore it, uh, they're, they're plagued uh, in some way in their, in their guilt, even in their fallen state. They try to ignore it, but, but it's there. And so he acknowledges that there is other ways that we have some knowledge of God. But he then points out that general revelation is not enough. We need what's in the Bible, particularly as it brings us the account of Christ Jesus. What's unique about the revelation in the Bible compared to just looking around and seeing that well-ordered creation is the story of redemption, right? The world will look around, you can look around, and you can see how a plant is ordered and designed. You can say, oh, I can see a creation behind this, and therefore there's a creator behind it. But that's not going to tell you about, about our fall into sin and our need for redemption and, and how Christ saved us uh, through coming here to this world and dying in our place. We need the Bible to give us more, and that's what we, we have. He says that the one great event is key to the Bible and Christianity is the sacrifice of Jesus. I'll read you a little section here. This is on page 70 on chapter, chapter 4. Um, the way was opened, according to the Bible, by an act of God when almost 1,900 years ago, that would be now almost 2,000 years ago, uh, outside the walls of Jerusalem, the eternal Son was offered as a sacrifice for the sins of men. To that one great event, the whole Old Testament looks forward, and in that one event, the whole of the New Testament finds its center and core. Salvation, then, according to the Bible, is not something that was discovered, but something that happened. Hence appears the uniqueness of the Bible. All the ideas of Christianity might be discovered in some other religion, yet there would be in that other religion no Christianity. For Christianity depends not upon a complex of ideas, but upon the narration of an event. Without that event, the world and the Christian view is altogether dark, and humanity is lost with the guilt of sin. There can be no salvation by the discovery of eternal truth. For eternal truth brings not but despair because of sin, but a new face has been put upon life by the blessed thing that God did when he offered up his only begotten Son. So he's saying the... Uh, key unique thing that the scriptures give us here is the death and resurrection of Jesus as a sacrifice for sin so that we can be saved. You know, he even mentions there, like, you can look at other religions and find basically everything else of Christianity in one form or another, like, like, like the idea of the love you show neighbor, you might find in other religions, right? The idea that we're supposed to worship a divine being, you can find in other religions. But the idea that man had to be saved by his, from his sins, and that was happening through God coming and becoming incarnate and dying and rising, right? That's in Christianity alone and the whole grace idea behind all of that. 
And so that's what makes Christianity Christianity is this point. That's the doctrine. That's right. And that is a doctrine, right? And, and so you see how these chapters interrelate, right? You need the doctrine. And where do you get the doctrine? You live in the Bible. Right? And wh why do they not believe in the doctrine? Part of the reason why they don't believe in doctrine is because they don't believe the Bible that gives us the doctrine. At least not as we believe in it. <coughs> now, he does then address some objections to that. Uh, let me read um, a little bit further on this part here on one of the objections. Must, this is some of the objection on the other side, must we, it is said, depend upon what happened so long ago? Does salvation wait upon the examination of musty records? Is the trained student of Palestinian history, the modern priest, without whose gracious intervention no one can see God? Can we not find instead a salvation that is independent of history, a salvation that depends only on what is with us here and now? You see, that's the objection that's being raised. You know, do we have to rely on, on these old musty documents they claim? Do we have to rely on, on someone who's just an expert of, of, of the Palestinian area from 2,000 years ago? And, and he, what, when he addresses that here, one of the things he says is, well, he does acknowledge it. It's, it's a fair question to ask, basically. He, he acknowledges it's, there's, there's some weight in asking the question. But he does say, it goes on to say, it, it misses an important point. Yes, these things happened a long time ago, but it is not like we're not able to examine them ourselves today. He says, no, actually, you can look at these records here today and, and consider their credibility and find them to be credible, find them to be believable, and believe in them. And so uh, we continue today not just sort of to take their word for it, uh, but we examine and come in faith, and it's a reasonable faith, a rational faith, uh, that believes these accounts to be actually what happened. And so you can think of all the apologetics books, by the way, right? There's a lot of apologetics books that will help you ask some of those questions and think about the veracity of what we have in the scriptures. So again, his point is without the cross, without the resurrection, you really don't have Christianity. So then the, the liberals, uh, they often speak, instead of wanting to focus on the Bible, they speak on wanting to focus on experience, Christian experience, Christian experience. In other words, don't spend your whole time studying the Bible to know what it means to be a Christian, but, but spend your time experiencing Christ and they might mean things like, like praying, right? Which is good to pray, right? Um, uh, some of them might have a more mystical way of uh, even sort of, sort of going down that path. Um, it might mean actually going out and doing stuff in the name of Christ and somehow learning something through that Christian experience. Um, Point he wants to say in that. He says Christian experience is important. But you don't have Christian experience without the Bible. Not, not really. Meaning if, and I've seen this before among people who would not call themselves theologically liberals, they say I was praying and they believed God gave them some word, and I'm thinking like a Pentecostal type of people, right? But if if you got some strange word 
that couldn't at all be confirmed by biblical teaching, then guess what you should do with that strange word? Get rid of it. And if you got some word that is really just what's already in the Bible, then why did you need that word anyways? It's right there in the Bible, right? Christian experience disconnected from the word has no foundation is his point that he's, he's trying uh, to make. He goes on then to emphasize that the Christian view of the Bible is that it is inspired. Inspired. Now this is an important thing, right? The doctrine of inspiration. And um, it's because it is inspired that we can say a lot of cool things about it. Let me make sure we understand what we're talking about. Inspired means that yes, humans wrote these things down, but they did it by the Holy Spirit supernaturally guiding them and giving them in one form or another the words that ended up on paper. Now sometimes that's in a very direct dictation sort of mode. Tell the people this, quote, but more often than not, it is prophets and apostles that, that are writing material, speaking material, and the Spirit is guiding them and governing them, so what that they write is not only man's word, it's God's word. And that's, uh, uh, you know, We've got various passages I can point us to on that, and we've talked about that in depth, so I'm not necessarily going to go through a, a complete Bible uh, passage right now, but 2 Timothy 3.16, uh, Peter talks about this as well, um, about the Spirit moving on people so that what they have is the Word of God. Um, but because we believe it to be inspired, we therefore conclude it does not have errors in it. Does God know all things? Does God lie? So therefore, if God is the one behind the book, it can't have errors in it. If he was a liar, or if he was ignorant, we might imagine there could be errors. But the character of God would tell us not to. Um, is God in charge? Yes. So therefore, is his word authoritative in our lives? Absolutely. And so you see the character of God suddenly plays into his word, and we receive it then in, in a special way because of it. Uh, I'll, I'll read on page 72 here. The contents of the Bible then are unique, but another fact about the Bible is also important. The Bible might contain an account of a true revelation from God, and yet the account be full of error. Might, he says, hypothetically. Before the full authority of the Bible can be established, therefore it is necessary to add to the Christian doctrine of revelation the Christian doctrine of inspiration. The latter doctrine means that the Bible not only is an account of important things, but that the account itself is true. The writers having been so preserved from error, despite the full maintenance of their habits of thought and expression, that the resulting book is the infallible rule of faith and practice. What's he getting at? He basically says, you could imagine a situation where God did real things in history, and somebody over here, like a reporter, not inspired, you could imagine 
is just reporting on what God did, and that those events are real and true, but that the reporter was failed and flawed, and so might introduce errors or wrong perspectives, kind of like, you know, if the if there's a crime and the police come and they start interviewing different people, you might get some accounts and not all of them are accurate. You could imagine that, but that's not what the Bible says about itself. The Bible actually says that the Holy Spirit is the one who's guided each of these authors so that what is produced is infallible because it's inspired. This doctrine of inspiration is a key difference between us and liberals. Liberals don't have this doctrine of inspiration. Therefore, they don't view the Bible the same way we do. It's just a human product from their standpoint. Does that make sense? It's just a human product from their standpoint. Machen then says something interesting. He starts to dive into um, the ways that the liberals have dealt with this doctrine. And he, he points out two issues. One, when they attack, attack uh, Christianity, or sorry, uh, when they attack, uh, the, yeah, Christianity, the, the Christian view here, that they do it in a straw man sort of way, first off. And then secondly, uh, so often in front of other people, um, they speak in terms that might make it sound like they believe more about the Bible than they really do. For example, they might talk about the Christians, the inerrant people who hold the infallibility of the Bible that we're talking about here, that they sort of just use the Bible superstitiously like a talisman, just just without any, any sort of discretion, just take whatever it says and treat it like a magic spell. Um, or they might act like they hold more to the Bible by, by speaking of the Bible as divine. They might say, the Bible is divine. That sounds pretty good, right? If you sit in the pulpit and you didn't think your pastor had become a liberal, and he's saying, that, uh, we use the divine Bible here, the divine word of God, right? Uh, and, 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 when you get them to unpack what they really hold, you realize that they are using divine in a, in a much less real way than we would use the word uh, divine. And I can talk of chocolate being divine, right? I mean, you can use divine in a, in a sort of lots of ways. And so Mason's basically saying they got their fingers crossed behind their backs. That they're basically lying so that the people in the pew aren't just going to kick them out right away. I mean, this is what they did, right? The liberals came into all these mainline denominations and tried to act both, we're saving Christianity for the modern time, but we still are Christian, and over time have sort of, you know, indoctrinated the people in the pulpit so they didn't abuse, so they didn't just kick them out right away. But Machen's saying that they basically are lying when they're when they're acting like they, they value the word of God. And sometimes they'll tell you more 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 clearly than others. Um, I've used this before, but I was at a first first year at Novato uh, when I got here uh, at a I went to this one of these like minister uh, gatherings, and first time I was there, and so you never know what kind of churches will be there. And there are a lot of churches there that are the liberal type, the kinds that he's combating against. And one of the pastors came to me and says, you know what, I probably have a lot more in common with you than, than the rest of these churches 
because of their view on the Bible. He's understanding that they're liberals, right? And so their view on the Bible is, is going to be very far off. He then said, not that I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture or anything like that. <laughs> Will you remember his name? I do, and I won't say it from the moment. <laughs> um, so, this, it was, it was actually a true statement that he made as I got to know the people. This person who made that statement was closer to my view because those other ones were even worse. We're just so far out there. And, and yet, this is by the little side note, Christianity versus liberalism, right? There's liberalism over here. Liberalism said we're trying to save Christianity, right? There became a group out of liberalism called neo-orthodox that tried to save Christianity out of liberalism. And so if Christianity's over here and liberalism's over here, they tried to say, let's get to here. <laughs> right? And, and sort of look respectable from liberals' eyes, but yet still not hold the things we're talking about here. Which the church has held. And so The liberal view of the Bible denies inspiration. Give you a little fancier word. If they had a chalkboard, I'd write this up for you. Plenary inspiration. P-L-E-N-A-R-Y. Plenary. Who has an idea what plenary means? Yeah, I think that's a perfectly fine way. You can, a couple of different ways that you could. But basically, that's the idea. Complete. Full. Everything in the Bible is inspired. One of the things the liberals started doing was saying things like, listen for the word of God. Meaning, we'll read your Bible passage, and you hopefully can find something of God's word that somehow survived the test of time in these musty old records. Maybe we can find something here today that really is the word of God. See, they're looking that the Bible contains the word of God in a, in a uh, it's not all the word of God idea. And, and, and so, plenary inspiration is saying that it all is inspired. You know, once you start deciding for yourself what's inspired or not, then you no longer have a standard anymore. You become the standard if you can decide this isn't uh, true Bible, this is true Bible. And that's what they've done. That's exactly what they've done. And why do they do it? Mason basically suggests it's because they hate so many things that are in the Bible. Heaven and hell, or hell, that's the they hate that. So they find a way to take it out of the Bible. Um, miracles, they, they think, we're not foolish, superstitious people anymore. We, we gotta get rid of that stuff. Um, more, more recently, speaking against homosexuality, that's that's so mean and evil. We better get rid of that too. Right? You know, and that's a more modern application. Uh, the mainline denominations have started doing homosexual unions, weddings, right? And people, this is more recent, right? People are like, what? How could they do this? 
And, and I say, did you read Christian liberalism? hundred years ago, they got rid of the Bible, and, and so hundred years ago, uh, they said, we'll pick and choose what we want. So are you surprised that now when current sensibilities have changed about a thing like homosexuality, that they can just get rid of it? Because they don't have a standard other than themselves deciding what is or isn't God's word. And so that's, that's what they do. Um, one of the things he points out is that when you look at even along the scholarly uh, crowd that's emphasizing so much of this, you look at how they treat other ancient books, and they tend to treat other ancient books, ancient manuscripts, with a greater level of sort of trustworthiness than they do the Bible. Uh, that they sort of add all the more extra suspicion on everything in the Bible. This can't be valid. This can't be true. And they became, uh, they began a process, and it's called the critical process. The critical process. You know, basically, you look at a Bible text, and instead of saying, this is God's word, what is it saying? And how does it apply to me? They start trying to figure out, in their mind, figure out, what were all the different sources that led to this thing coming into existence like it is? And, oh, like in the first five books of the Bible, they have like five different sources they think contributed to uh, the, the, the Bible. It's, a, it's sort of like a patchwork of different ideas merged together. And they spend most of their time, if you read one of their commentaries, most of the time is all about this whole process. And usually what it's often trying to ask is, is did any of this actually happen? Did Abraham really exist? Did Jesus really say that? That's most of the time what they spend all this paper talking about. And um, so that allows them to get rid of what they want to get rid of, to change the interpretation the way they want to, to find bias that they then disregard from certain passages. And therefore, Jesus is not the authority. The Bible is not the authority. But really, the critical process becomes the authority because the critical process can make the Bible anything you want it to be. Side note, so many Bible commentaries out there are littered with this stuff. And so just because you find a Bible commentary at a used bookstore or something doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's going to be helpful. Um, maybe you've heard of like the Anchor Bible, for example, Anchor Bible Commentary. It's really bad when it comes to this stuff. And, and it's like you have to spend uh, so much time filtering that out to maybe find some helpful aspects of actually thinking about the, the Bible passage. So not all commentaries are created equal. As a pastor, I have, when I'm preparing sermons, I use a wide range of commentaries, including some of these, these liberal guys who are doing some of this stuff, because I want to know what their arguments are so I can know if I need to respond to it in some way or, or another. Uh, but as a layperson, you have to be on guard against this kind of stuff. Um, so ultimately, you, you, they, they, they can make the Bible say whatever they wanted to say through this. Um, Page 79, it concludes this chapter. It's no wonder then that liberalism is totally different from Christianity, for the foundation is different. Christianity is founded upon the Bible. It bases upon the Bible both its thinking and its life. Liberalism, on the other hand, is founded upon the shifting emotions of sinful men. Yeah. That's, 
that's that's the uh, that's the point. Yeah, that's the point. Yeah. So next chapter, Christ. Christ. Think about so liberals and Christians have two different views about the Bible. Guess what? They got two different views about Jesus. For the liberals, liberal Christianity, Jesus is the example to follow. We agree he's an example to follow, but more than that, for Christianity, Jesus also and especially and particularly is the Redeemer. The Redeemer. The object of our faith. Our only hope in life and death. We have to find salvation in Jesus. That whole discussion is central to Christianity. That whole discussion is loathsome to liberal Christians. I don't want to say liberal Christians. To, to liberals, right? Because they're not even really Christian, really. Not even Christian is the point, right? Um, so then what uh, Machen does is he starts talking about different parts of the Bible that, that make this point. And he starts with Paul. He starts with Paul. Yes, you can find in Paul's writings the idea that Jesus is an example. It's certainly not the primary emphasis of the Apostle Paul. I'll read from page 81 here. Okay, let's see here. Not the example of Jesus, but the redeeming work of Jesus was the primary thing for Paul. The religion of Paul was not primarily faith in God like Jesus' faith. It was faith in Jesus. Paul committed to Jesus without reserve the eternal destinies of his soul. That is what we mean when we say that Paul stood in a truly religious relation to Jesus. See what he said here? He, he, he says, it's not about how did Jesus believe in God. It's how we believe in Jesus. That's the emphasis that Paul has about Christ. Jesus has to be the object of our faith, not just a mere example. And he goes on to say the other apostles, Peter, for example, even he says even the Judaizers would agree with this idea. The Judaizers, of course, were dealt with for, for some of the wrong teachings that they were advocating in the New Testament were saying you had to get circumcised in order to be a Christian. But even the Judaizers would agree that Jesus is the object of the Christian faith, and that's central and so important and can't be removed and still have Christianity. But then Paul, or excuse me, Machen, uses Jesus' teachings. Go to, go to the Gospels. Where do we find Jesus teaching? Yes, Jesus has some ethical teachings, but his teachings are certainly far more than simply ethical teachings. It's not just uh, love God, love neighbor. It's not just turn the other cheek. Uh, there are repeated statements where Jesus is presenting himself as the savior of men. Think of the number of times you saw it when we went through Luke. So then you know that the Son of Man has authority over sins, or the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, or the Son of Man is this, and he's speaking of himself as this climactic Son of Man Messiah reference. And so Jesus taught moral commandments, but he also taught stuff about himself. 
that would be a great offense to the liberal today, the liberal theologian. Not only did Jesus have such teaching, but Jesus taught on hell arguably bolder than anyone. Again, that's not a liberal doctrine that they want to hear, right? They don't want to, they don't want to think of hell and God's judgment. And so the New Testament, its witness is united on seeing Jesus not just as an example to follow, but as the only Redeemer. The Redeemer, the only way of salvation. Right? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the object of our faith. Now, the liberals, they want to talk uh, about Jesus and talk about him all the time and make, make you think that they love Jesus and follow Jesus the way that we love and follow Jesus, right? That, again, makes us getting into some of the deceptive practices of these, of these liberal preachers. They talk and talk about Jesus, but a lot of their language is... is um, is, is sounds great until you dig a little deeper. Uh, so again, Jesus will, will sometimes be described as the founder of Christianity, but but basically, in their view, it's because he's the first Christian. He's the founder of Christianity in the liberal viewpoint because he's the first Christian. In other words, he's shown us how to be a Christian. Because that's how they view Jesus, as an example only. Machen actually pushes back. Yes, Jesus is an example, but think about it. Jesus should not be an example in all things. What do I mean? What does he mean? Jesus understood himself to be the eternal Son of God and the Messiah with a mission to go and die on the cross for the salvation of God's people. We ought not to emulate that, right? Jesus is an example. We don't go and say, well, I guess I'm the, the second person of the Trinity who has to go and die on the cross, right? That would be to assign a place to ourselves that's not ours to have. So you can't even follow out this idea of Jesus as an example to the full. So then think about this. If Jesus, if, if, the, if the liberals want to take everything Jesus really did say and sort of discount some of it, like the fact that he claimed to be the Son of God, eternal Son of God, the fact that he claimed to be uh, the Messiah, the Redeemer, right? If you're going to sort of save Jesus from a liberal's mind, right? Like, we want to take much of what Jesus teaches, but there's the other things he teaches, we want to get rid of that, right? right? You've had conversations with people like this. I don't believe he was my savior, but I believe he was a good teacher, right? If you have to take off all those other things he said about himself, what kind of crazy person would, would you know, morally, immoral sort of person? I mean, I mean, Jesus said things like, if you've seen me, you've seen God, right? Um, how much stain would that put on his teaching record? If if, if you want to say, well, just ignore those other things that he says are real wild and ludicrous, then why would you listen to him on everything else? That's what Nietzsche gets into this here. Same thing then about Jesus' sinlessness. Jesus' sinlessness. He said, this is a problem for liberals. 
Jesus is Jesus sinless? Machen's acknowledging that Christians have always said Jesus is sinless, right? And that liberals have trouble answering this in a good way. Because if he's truly sinless, guess we have to talk about this? Sin and hell and the need to be saved from our sin. And those are topics they don't want to talk about. But if Jesus isn't sinless, then why, why do we even care about him as, as an example, as chief, right? Um, so he points out that they're wanting to not talk about certain things becomes problematic. Of course, what did Jesus begin his ministry saying? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You can't talk about Christianity without talking about sin and how Jesus didn't need to repent. We Christians do need to repent. And so basically, the liberals have a fabricated Jesus. And this viewpoint has gone on just up the road here in Santa Rosa. Um, it was in the, uh, was it the 80s or 90s? I got the date here. The Jesus Seminar, or when was the Jesus Seminar? 90s, early 90s. Something like that. They basically had a bunch of scholars sit around to decide what did Jesus really say? Looking for the real Jesus. There's this liberalism called the quest for the historical Jesus that has taken a few phases, but it's this idea of we want to find the real Jesus because most of them want to acknowledge that Jesus really did exist. But they want to try to say what, what did he really say? What did he really teach? And there's this academic sort of uh, attempt to try to recover what Jesus really didn't say. They, they would take certain things and say, Jesus didn't say that, or probably didn't say that. And literally at the Jesus Seminar held up at the Pink Flamingo Hotel up in uh, Santa Rosa, they like, I believe they used like co colored marbles to vote on whether they thought Jesus did or didn't say each of these things that they were talking about. That is sacrilegious, blasphemous, um, presumptuous, uh, I mean, to think this is Christianity, it's just, it's just not. So uh, page 116 Great. concludes this uh, chapter. Yeah, go ahead. Those, those theologians are all over the History Channel. So mm -hmm. if you try to learn anything about Jesus on the History Channel, you're probably learning from one of those guys. Could you say that one more time because it's so important? <laughs> Don't learn anything about Jesus from the History Channel. <laughs> yeah. 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 If you want to see what, what this lesson's been about, Marlon, Marlon, sort of the flip side is you can see these, these liberals, you know, on it's just I'm I'm not making this stuff up, right? I mean And you can find stuff on the history channel that sounds pious. Yeah. Right. It sounds like they're respectful of Jesus and, and so you think, oh what what is this? It's on cable TV and but it's not. They're they're taking the language of Christianity and, and they're but they've gutted it. And most of it's been strongly developed through academic scholarly institutions that have as a foundation is none of this stuff's really true but we can still find a value for religious purposes yeah so um thank you marlon for that uh ending here um last little conclusion on on this chapter about christ um the liberal jesus Despite all the efforts of modern psychological reconstruction to galvanize him into life, remains a manufactured figure of the stage. Very different is the Jesus of the New Testament and the great 
scriptural and of the great scriptural creeds that Jesus is indeed mysterious. Who can fathom the mystery of his person? But the mystery is a mystery in which a man can rest. The Jesus of the New Testament has at least one advantage over the Jesus of modern reconstruction. He is real. So read that last that word now. The Jesus of the New Testament has at least one advantage over the Jesus of modern reconstruction. He is real. <laughs> he is not a manufactured figure suitable as a point of support for ethical maxims, but a genuine person whom a man can love. Men have loved him through all the Christian centuries. And the strange thing is that despite all the efforts to remove him from the pages of history, there are those who love him still. Mm -hmm. If you combine that, you know, they, they're talking about old musty books and experience. I mean, what more experience could the apostles have had than they touched him, they, they lived with him, right? They saw his, his, his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. In their experience, they were willing to die for it. Amen. That's real Christian experience. I kept this late. Heavenly Father, thank you for this study. Bless us as we take a break. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.